Welcome to Rua Church. For those of you who are listening on the podcast, there's only eight of us here tonight, so everyone's dearly missed, and we're looking forward to having you guys back. So, small room, but nonetheless, um, thankful I get to gather with you guys. Uh, So we are in Hosea chapter 6 this week. Um, Before we jump in, I'd like to give a recap of Hosea and where we are and how we got here. Um, So Hosea 1... Chapters 1, 2, and 3 really are the narrative, really are the entire, um, I don't want to say meat of the book, but the entire story of the book. Um, we see Hosea, who's a prophet called by God, and God calls him to do something that's a little bit strange and extraordinary, to marry Gomer, who's a, a woman, um, a woman of the night, or um, a woman that is, wasn't seen, let's say rightly, in the public eye. And they have um, children. Um, they, there's three children specifically, and we don't know to what extent um, they were Hosea's or not. But also, um, we see that Gomer, um, in her nature, she does what she does, and she leaves Hosea, and that Hosea is commanded to go and bring her out to buy her back, to bring her back into his household. Um, and then so that's chapters 1, 2, 3. Then chapters 4 and on is just going more into detail, more emphasizing certain points, different themes throughout the book, different characteristics of God. Um, So nonetheless, chapter 6 is recapping um, chapters 1, 2, and 3, but also looking more specifically into a characteristic of God and who he is. Um, To kind of sum up what I'll be talking about tonight, um, I just want to read the first verse in chapter 4. I think it will do well and be the through line for what I have to talk about tonight. Um, so it reads, Hear the word of the Lord, o, o children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. So tonight, um, there's 11 verses, and I'm going to try and do it in 40 minutes. We all know how that happened, how that went last time. But nonetheless, there's three sections. Um, verses 1, 2, and 3 is the first. Um, then 4, 5, and 6, then 7 to 11. And that's kind of how we'll break it up and we'll work through them um, piece by piece uh, tonight. Uh, chapter 5, verses 11 15, kind of give us a good runway into chapter 6. So I'm going to start in verse 11, then I'll read down to 6 1. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment, because he was determined to go after filth. By him, like a moth to Ephraim, and like dry rot to the house of Judah. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king. But he is not able to cure you or heal your wound. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one shall rescue. I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. And in their distress earnestly seek me. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down that he will bind us up. So in this section, um, chapter 6, verses 1, 2, and 3, this is kind of Hosea, and also a group of the Israelites who have repented. Not the majority, not most of them, but a group of them who are in unison, in one, um, one tongue, with one voice, with Hosea, are repenting and coming to the Lord. Um, so a couple questions I want to ask is, is, come let us return to the Lord. And so what are they returning from? The sin of the Israelites at this time is that they are finding, they are, they are seeking refuge in false lovers. And not only false idols, and that they're worshiping 
false gods and gods of um, the other surrounding nations, but also they are seeking hope and refuge in Assyria. That Assyria, this great powerful nation, they are turning to to ally with them for protection. Um, so this is who they are. They're recognizing um, this, this faithful few group, we'll say, are recognizing their sin, their idolatry towards Assyria and false idols, and are repenting and returning from that. And, but then also, who are they returning to? And so we know the book Hosea, um, it'd be Gomer returning to Hosea. Hosea has been the faithful lover, the one who has constantly seeked and tried to do his best. Um, whatever he did was always in the best interest of Gomer, whether she saw it or not. And so what it says is, come, let's return to the Lord. And it's capital L-O-R-D, and this is the covenant name of the Lord, of Yahweh. And so the same way for us, you know, the, the God that we cry out to, the God that we are turning to, we can know who he is. And there's, there's no shade of darkness within the Lord that we serve. There's no shade of inconsistency. Never do we have to wonder when events are happening in our lives or things are um, playing out the way they are, if God is for us or against us. Never do we have to wonder if the God turned his back on us or, or that he um, changed his mind um, and he no longer wants to desire or be with us. Um, so the same way that the Israelites at this time will look at the God of Moses, the God who faithfully um, brought them out of captivity, out of slavery in Egypt, to the promised land, and will be faithful evermore. Same way we can think about the, the Lord that was faithful to Jesus and to so many of the champions of the New Testament. And like, this is the God who we are crying out for. Never do we have to wonder or fear um, if he has changed or if he is not against us anymore. So, Another thing to uh, mention is, come, let us return to the Lord. So this is like a group thing. Let us return to the Lord. And so true repentance, you know, when you have a- actually experienced the, the freeing of a burden, or as Courtney just read, um, as Jesus says, like, come, my, my burden is e- easy. My yoke is light. Like, when you've experienced that, that forgiveness, when you've experienced that communion with the Lord, it's not something that you keep within yourself. It's not something that you, you store away or hide away or... or um, not reveal, but it's something that it, you can't help but to share. You can't help but to tell others about. And so we see that consistently here um, with the Israelites. Come let us return to the Lord, that they're encouraging one another. They're proclaiming to one another to return to the Lord. Um, and then why do they return? Come let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. So the disobedience and revolting of Israel brings about the tearing and striking down by God himself. In, in some way, in the same way, it is our complacency and our disobedience that brings about the Lord punishing us. That just like how Israel and their, their whoring and their idolatry and pursuing false lovers, God has rightly punished them. In the same way, the Lord rightly punishes us when we need it. Um, but it's not that the Lord punishes us, uh, he punishes us as a principal, as a, as a law keeper necessarily, but he does it as a father. Um, so if you would turn with me real quick to Hebrews uh, chapter 12. It's, it's one of the last books of your Bible. Um, we have a beautiful picture of what, um, what I mean by when I say that he has torn us down, that he may heal us, he has struck us down, that he will bind us up. So Hebrews chapter chapter 12, starting in verse 7, it reads, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? 
If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the fathers of spirit and, and live? For they discipline us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to, sh- to those who have been trained by it. And so we see that it's the, s- the same spirit that convicts us today is also the same spirit that comforts us. It is the spirit that we were once in bondage to that we are now spirit of adoption, that we are purchased by, that we are brought into, um, into this family, into this relationship with the Lord. And so God's grace is often actually most clearly seen not in the withholding of punishments, but by the giving of. That the Lord, as we just read in Hebrews and the author of Hebrews says, like the Lord disciplines those that he loves. And so in the same way, when we look at the story of Hosea and Gomer, we know that Gomer is living with her, her false lovers. And Hosea is still providing the gifts to the false lovers to give to Gomer. So whenever Hosea withholds that or stops giving these gifts, it's then Gomer recognizes her need for um, her one true lover, for her, lo- for her Lord. And so the point of discipline is always to bring us back, to return, to bring us to repentance um, to the Lord. And so he, he strikes us down so that he may bind us up. And um, as Paul says, um, great, our Lord's grace is made perfect, perfect in weakness. Um, so moving on to verse 2. After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up that we may live before him. Um, so this is interesting, the language used in the, the word choice. Um, so most scholars will understand that the, these days that are being referred to, the two days and the third day, are seasons, um, lengths uh, of time, a period of time. Um, and it wouldn't be, we would know it wouldn't necessarily be actual days because what um, they'd be referring to is Israel being brought back from captivity. And we know that Israel was kept under captivity um, for 70 years in Assyria. So likely it's lengths of time. Um, and thus, it's, going, it's meaning that the Lord is going to redeem Israel over some time. Um, and so in the same way, you know, when someone is very ill, like has a very strong disease or something very wrong with them, probably nurses would know this better than I would, you don't give them a super strong medicine that is just as powerful as like what the illness or sickness is. But rather, you have to like give it in doses. You slowly, over time... Um, give the remedy, give the medicine, so that it, it heals whatever their problem might be. So the same way the Lord here is saying over a period of time, he will redeem Israel. He will bring them, he will reconcile them, um, and, and bring them back into his fold, into right relationship with him. But it's also um, on the third day, so most of the Israelites at this time would have understood that the third day is the day that when a corpse would be uh, corrupt, that if it was buried, this is when like it would putrefy and um, be no good, basically. And so the understanding is that at the right time, the Lord will reconcile, bring back his people before it's too late, before there is no reconciliation. But it's also, we can't deny the fact that these, the, 
The language here uses is very specific. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. For there's only one person that we know that was in the grave for two days and on the third day was resurrected. And so it, there's a lot of imagery in pointing to Jesus here. And so that's something I hope to talk more at small group about and how it could be both or one or none. But nonetheless, um, we get a clear picture of Jesus and what he does here. And so repentance, come let us return to the Lord. Repentance, maybe we've always heard that repentance is a 180, that you, you repent of what you've done and you turn a 180 from what you were doing and you go the opposite direction. But I would argue that when it comes to salvation, it looks a little bit different, that we don't just repent of our sinfulness and we turn the 180. Um, but rather, I think uh, Ezekiel 37 uh, verses 3 through 10 gives us a better picture. So Ezekiel's just two books back behind you. There's Daniel, then there's Ezekiel. And if you would turn there with me. Um, often, it's, it's rather common to hear the teaching that you are a good person, and then Jesus saves you. Or that there's some good within you, and then the Lord just comes along Sides you and, and does the rest. Like the the um, best example I have of this of this teaching is that if getting to heaven is a stairway, you climb as many stairs as you can, and then Jesus will pull you the rest of the way. And I would argue that salvation um, does not look like that at all. Salvation looks like you're at the bottom of the stairs and you can't take a single step, and Jesus pulls you the rest of the way. And so you kind of see this imagery here in Ezekiel. So I'm going to start in verse 3 and read to verse 10. He said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus is the Lord God to these bones. Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live. And you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. As I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling. The bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews upon them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on, the, on their feet, an exceedingly great army. So salvation um, doesn't necessarily look like, it looks like repentance, but not just in the sense that we just do a 180, but rather it's, it's a death to life. There's this drastic and radical transformation that happens. And this is exactly what baptism is. This is what baptism, baptism is meant to reflect, that you go down in the water, in the grave, because that's where we were. We were dead before the Lord resurrected us, if you will. And then we arise, and we arise with Christ. Um, and so in, in the same way, the resurrection of Christ is a mirror to our own lives. That once we were dead, walking in our sins, hellbound, and the Lord came alongside us and resurrected us, gave us a new life, that now we put on the, the clothing of Christ is what um, the language Paul uses, that we may live. So then what does Jesus raising, resurrecting from the grave mean for us? The resurrection of Christ is our one and only hope. If Christ doesn't resurrect from the, Christ, from the grave, then everything we are doing is meaningless. There's no, there's no point in it. If anything, we'd be Jews at best. The, 
the resurrection is the proof that the atonement took place, that our sins are um, no longer, no longer are we not held accountable, no longer are we found guilty for our sins, that we are now found in right standing with an you know, uh, almighty and holy God. But more than anything else, it's, it's that the, you know, we sing that song like, grave has no hold on me, no longer. No longer are we bound and slaves and captives to our sin. But now we have this resurrected new life. And the same spirit that resurrected Christ from the grave is the same spirit that lives within us now. Uh, Romans eight eleven says this, the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So the, the resurrection of Christ has um, so much meaning for our daily lives. It, it's so much more than just Easter, you know? Of course, it's a great time. Just as Christmas, we celebrate the, the birth of Christ, and Easter, we celebrate the resurrection, the empty tomb. But nonetheless, I, I'm prone to believe if we were to reflect more on the resurrection of Christ and what that means to us daily, we'd be much more impacted um, and greatly encouraged by it. So, moving on to verse 3. After, uh, let us know, let us press on to know the Lord, his going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the, as the spring rains that water the earth. Um, I think as humanity, we all have something very in common, something that stirs our hearts and draws our hearts um, towards this specific thing. And so most of us, I assume, took English literature at some point. And so we probably learned what epic novel was, an epic poem, and how to learn like the nine characteristics and probably read um, some stories about it. And you know, some of the greatest movies and books are considered epics. We think about like Harry Potter or Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, or the Epic of Gilgamesh, you know, the things that captivate us, the things that are most popular um, movie-wise or book-wise. Um, and you know, I, I would argue that the Christian walk is very similar to like an epic, to like a great journey, to an adventure that we all get to partake on, that we all get to participate in, that we get to partner with God. Um, and so when I read verse three, let us know is kind of the like initial starting point of this adventure. It's like the initial, um, the first step or the um, beginning of a journey. And I would say that let us know is, is salvation, that when we, when the Lord saves us and we rightfully see God, then the adventure starts. And then it says, let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. So it's not just a one-time moment, not just one place in time, but rather our entire lives, we press on to know the Lord, that we seek, we hunger, we thirst for more. Um, Jeremiah 24, 7 reads, I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord. And so this initial um, step into the journey of knowing the Lord and pressing on. Let us press on to know the Lord. And press on is like this actively pursuing. It, it's why it, it's arguably the purpose we live our entire lives. To glorify God is to know him better. You know? To know, the more you know him better, the better you can glorify him. And the Lord has clearly revealed himself in everything. doesn't matter what profession you are, in or what hobbies or things that you're passionate in, the more you become an expert in those things, 
the more you dive deeper into them, the more you can see how the Lord has revealed himself, whether that's like in nature and sunrises and the mountains or engineering or the human body or anything about children and watching Logan play. It's like you, you learn more about God as you study more of his creation, as you study more of the things that he has created in this world. And so we pursue, we seek. Um, and nonetheless, pursuing the Lord can have um, downsides. It can be confusing at times. There can be a gray area, a lot of disclarity. But just as it says, let us know, let us press on to the Lord, his going out is as sure as the dawn. At the right time, at the right moment, the Lord will, will reveal himself. That those who are earnestly seeking, seeking, hungry, and thirsting for him, the Lord will reveal himself when he deems it right. And let it be known that that will be the perfect moment. Um, but nonetheless, there's, this picture is kind of like this longing anticipation. Um, I've been blessed to do a lot of like hiking trips, but also I do a lot of hunting, so I wake up early in the morning and get in a tree stand, and it's, it's very cold, it's dark, it's miserable, honestly. But like you're, you're, you're waiting for the sunrise. You're waiting for light to see, but also the warmth from the sun. Same way when camping, and when you have like cold, wet, just miserable nights that you can't sleep, like you're, you're anticipating, you're waiting for the sun to reveal so, there may, so you can stop trying to sleep, but also that the, the warmth and the, the day would come about. So the same way, like the Lord is faithful to reveal himself at the right moment. Um, so he'll, he's going out as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as spring rains that water the earth. So not only is the Lord faithful to reveal himself to those who earnestly seek him, the Lord also sustains us in that journey. Um, he will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. Is the Lord that not only gives the conviction to desire to seek more of him, but he's also the one who gives us the strength to pursue him, the encouragement, the, the hunger for more of him. And honestly, this is... Um, I hope and pray this is the heart of, of Rua Church. That everything we do is for the purpose of cultivating a community, cultivating a culture that is pursuing the Lord more, that is hungering and thirsting for him. So whether, so I mean, that's like why we preach the way we do, is trying to be as faithful to the text as possible because we believe the Lord has revealed himself in the text. So thus, the, better, the more we can be in the text, the more we can understand and see the Lord. This is why we do confessions of sin and accountability. Because we believe that in bearing one another's burdens and holding each other accountable and doing life on life together, it's like the Lord is clearly seen. I think of First um, John 4.12 says, um, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, then God's love is made perfect within us. It's, I just butchered it. It's something along those lines. But also even small group and theology, you know, um, R.C. Sproul's and Alexander always says this, that we're all theologians. We're either good or bad ones. And theology is just one of the steps in pursuing the Lord. If it's one great adventure, I would hope that everyone at some point opens the door to theology and starts pursuing theology and understanding it. Because at the, the most basic, fundamental level of what theology is, it's understanding God more and better. And so in a way, I hope that we all desire theology and that we all thrive on small group and um, just can't wait to... Um, dive into it together. But also, this is a beautiful picture of what heaven will be like. For all of eternity, God will continue to reveal more of himself to us. That we'll never be able to get to heaven and say, all right, this is where you start, God, and this is where you end. 
but for all of eternity, more and more of God will be revealed. And thus, like, more will we enjoy of him. More will we find contentment and be satisfied in him. So in the same way, like, let our lives reflect this truth. Um, because, Jesus says in John 17, 3, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. And it's also important, you know, Jesus says that I have come to give life and life to the fullest. I've come to give the abundant life. And when you think about all these epics, all these movies, um, the, the, usually the purpose of them is to find eternal life. You know, Star Wars, Anakin seeking eternal life from the Sith Lord. Lord of the Rings, whoever wears the ring, like never dies, never grows. Harry Potter, the Sorcerer's Stone, like preserving your life. The, you know, even the epic of Gilgamesh, you know, he went on a journey to find like the well of eternal life. All these epics that we love and care about so deeply, the whole purpose of it, arguably, is to find eternal life. When Christianity is arguably the opposite, where they live their entire lives trying to find eternal life, and they, they do everything to seek it. Christianity, we find eternal life, and thus we live in light of that, in pursuit of that. Yeah. No, it, it's just so profound. It, because life, like, eternal life starts upon salvation when we find the Lord. It's not that we wait. It's not that we work for it now and we get to experience it one day, but we get to experience the fulfillment of it, the fullment of it. But in our journey, in our, our faith walk, if you will, you know, we, we more and more experience eternal life here on earth. And that's why, you know, the, when Jesus teaches us how to pray, like, Lord, let your kingdom come. Thy will be done, thy kingdom come. Because we get to experience heaven here on earth through our pursuit of pursuit for the knowledge of God to glorify him, but also in the community of the body of believers. So, that's the first section, verses 1, 2, and 3. Now, the next section is verses 4, 5, and 6. And here, this is the Lord speaking. Specifically, this is the Lord lamenting over his people. Because we see how, um, like I mentioned before, the first three verses were actually just probably a small group, not the majority by any means. But now we get to see the Lord lament over his people. Um, and we also get a very clear picture into the heart of God. Um, and what he cares about, and yeah, what he cares about. So, verse 4. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. So we see kind of the Lord, I don't know if fed up is the right word, but he, he's almost in a way exhausted. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Um, the Lord is exhausting his, his mercy to bring his people back to right relationship with him. Because we see that the Lord had torn them, he has struck them down, and some of them had repented and come back to him. But however, the majority of them still haven't. And so it's important to, um, just a quick side note, or not side, but important note is that God never destroys sinners till he sees there is no other way with them that the Lord will give countless opportunities for people to come and repent, to know him, to be reconciled to him. It's also interesting that he compares the love of the majority of the people to the morning dew. Um, so the morning dew in a, in a season of drought was like a promise of rain. But nonetheless, the dew would only last for a short period of time. It's not like it 
Does everyone know what a morning dew is? Maybe I should explain that first. Like, like a frost on the ground. But frost doesn't actually get to the ground. Like it doesn't make the ground wet. It just sits on top and then it's gone. So the morning dew honestly doesn't benefit anyone. It, it's like a um, false signal, if you will, of the hearts of the Israelites, saying that they have repent, that they will repent. But nonetheless, in just a short while, um, it will be gone. Uh, so in the same way, Gomer, returning back to Hosea, um, in numerous times that we see, it's, it's not like this real commitment. It doesn't last long before you know it, she's back on the street, back before you know it, she's being unfaithful again. So in the same way, that is how the Israelites' love for the Lord is being compared here in verse 4. Um, so then going on to verse 5, Therefore I have hooned them by the prophets, I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. Um, so the Lord's remedy or way to bring back um, his people are the prophets, and specifically the words that the prophets um, share, the prophets speak. And let it be known that the prophet's role wasn't the most favorable thing. Um, many prophets were killed for what they had to share. Um, Hosea had to marry a, a scandalous woman. Ezekiel couldn't mourn over the death of his wife. Jeremiah was not permitted to be married or have kids. The, the prophet's lives were far from easy. But nonetheless, the message they share will never, never, if very few instances, taken um, welcoming or, or warmly welcomed. Um, so in the same way, the Lord's word is our remedy today. The Lord's word is the way that we um, can return to him, that he heals us, that he binds us up, that he creates steadfast love within us. Um, and so in the same way, just as the prophet's words were offensive to usually the, the nation, God's word should be offensive to us in some way, shape, or form. And so what I mean by that is this. The, the imagery that is used here in Hosea is, or I guess in Ezekiel as well, is that we have like hearts of stones. And so, therefore, I've hooned them by the prophets. I've slain them by the words of my mouth. It, it, hoon is like to cut away with a sharp axe and to swing heavily at. And so much so that the people feel like they are being slain, that they are being killed. I have, I have slain them by the words of my mouth. Um, so in the same way, we, I argue that we need to open up the word of God and open up our hearts to it and allow the word to, if you will, fix us or to sharpen us or to cleanse us or to break away the sinfulness within us. Um, because I, I know we're all sinners because I hear you guys confess it every Saturday. But nonetheless, you know, it, it's this daily... Um, this daily act, this daily thing that needs to be done so that we can be cleansed, so that we can be in right standing. And it's through the word of God, just as the Israelites had the prophets, we have the full canon of scripture. We have the full revelation of the Lord. Every word, everything the Lord desired for us to have today, we have within this book. And this book is the thing that we open up ourselves to and we allow to speak into our lives and to cut away at the sinfulness, at the brokenness, at the wickedness that is within each and every one of our hearts. So the word of God will either be the death of sin in our lives or the death of the sinner. Um, and I think how you react uh, 
will show likewise. Because what is the outcome? What is the outcome of the Lord doing this? So verse five, therefore I have hooned them by the prophets, I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth at the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. So the outcome of the word of God killing sin, being the death of sin, is, is two things. There's first, for I desire steadfast love. It, it produces, it creates steadfast love within us. This is love for God, love the Lord your God with our heart, soul, mind, strength, but also love for others, love your neighbor as yourself. But also, it does the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And a word I could fill in here for knowledge of God is faith. Faith and understanding and who God is and how he works. And I would say that both are evidences of saving faith, that um, they go hand in hand. You can't just have faith, because we, uh, James talks about how even demons and Satan has faith in God. Like, what makes you any difference? And we know that you can't be good enough, and you can't just have um, to live a good life, because that's not redeemable. That can't save you. So both are examples of saving faith, of the Lord working your heart to, to transform it, to shape it, to conform you to the image of Christ. So what is happening here at this time in, in Israel is that um, people are doing sacrifices. Actually, people are doing a lot of sacrifices. However, the heart behind them, the intention behind them are wrong. They're doing it as like a get-out-of-jail-free card or just a, oh, I sinned, I need to go do this. But there's no genuine heart um, obedience behind it. Uh, so the Israelites are much more viewing it as a checklist to do than to be right with God. Um, it's, oh, I did this, so that's I need to go do this, and you just check the boxes. It's not a desire to be reconciled to God or stand um, before him rightly. And not only do the Israelites do this here and now, but the Pharisees will do the exact same thing um, close to 800 years later. So I'm going to read two accounts real quick in the book of Matthew. And this is Jesus engaging with the Pharisees. Um, so Jesus calls Matthew. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and reclining with Jesus and his, and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So you see the Pharisees not understanding Jesus and who he was and what he was doing, and Jesus responding, saying that he desires mercy and not sacrifice. It's not, it's not what we do, but it's rather the position, the disposition of our heart. The same way in Matthew 12, um, says at that time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and they began to pluck heads of grain to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in your law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, 
you not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So the same way the, the Pharisees are understanding being right with God as a checklist, that I need to do this, not associate with sinners. I need to not eat. I need to um, uphold the Sabbath, when actually that's not what the Lord desires. He does not desire sacrifice, but rather desires um, mercy. And it's not that God, because I, I read some people would say God's being inconsistent here, saying that he asks for sacrifices, he wants the burnt offerings, but then he's saying he's reject them. And it's not that God is doing this, but he's rejecting the abuse of them, that people are using this way, they're using this, we'll say, religion as a way to get around from doing what God actually desires, what God has actually asked them to do. Uh, Matthew Henry, a great author and pastor, um, says this, serious piety in the heart and life is the one thing needful, and separate from that, the performances of performances of devotion, though ever so plausible, ever so costly, are of no account. So God is concerned about the heart of obedience and not the act of obedience, essentially here. And, and this is a very woeful thing if we were to um, take it and reflect on it, think deeper on it. Um, because chances are, you know, there will be a lot of people in hell or going to hell who attended church their entire lives, who have never cursed, never done drugs, who've even been baptized. Because none of these things save you. It's the heart of the act. It's the heart of obedience, not the act of obedience itself. Um, so yeah, something to chew on there. <laughs> Very woeful thing. Um, so in these three verses, we see the heart of God uh, for us is to rightly worship him. And this is done by his word shaping, forming, and molding us rightly um, in a way that we rightly respond to him, that our heart truly desires him to be glorified and worship properly. Um, going on to verse 7, But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Um, we're probably much more like Adam than what we realize. Right? A lot of people were like, how, at least in my mind, you know, a thought stumbles across and it's like, how could Adam have been discontent? How could Adam have screwed up the way that he did? How could he have broken, you know, this covenant with the Lord? Um, but the more time I, I reflect on myself and also the more time I spend with children and how disobedient they are and you know, if I'm told not to do something, how much I want to break it or do it, um, I, I find that I'm, I am, and I think human nature is much more like Adam than what we realize, in the sense that we uh, want to break covenants or promises. Um, but we also understand that stronger covenants um, mean that there'll be like a stronger fallout, a, a bigger, um, bigger consequences. You know, if you go into the legal action with someone and make a deal saying that you'll do something and you know that if you don't, there's a big fine. That's a lot different than if you make a peaky promise to a kid that you'll do something and you know, there, there won't be as much fallout or consequences of it. And so what, um, in the same way even like with marriage, you know, if you enter into a marriage and if you were to cheat on your spouse or the husband was to cheat on the spouse, then the 
there, there's this great like public shame. Like people recognize that like breaking of this covenant is wrong. Um, and there's stricter, serious, more consequences for it. And so what this means here, but like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithless with, faithlessly with me. Is that um, God has made this covenant with his people, with the Israelites. And God made it in a way that he doesn't benefit from it. He did this for the sake, for the benefit of his people. And thus, for them to transgress against it, for them to break it, for them to go against it, it is a, is a great and tragic thing against the character and the holiness of God. Um, again, like God receives nothing from this, but nonetheless, the Israelites transgress and, and go against it. So thus, it makes sense um, if we continue reading. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithless with me. Gilead is a city of evildoers tracked with blood as robbers lie in wait for a man. So the priests band together. They murder on the way to Shechem. They commit villainy. Um, so Gilead is a, is a city um, on east of the Jordan River in would be today Jordan, but then it would be um, then it would be Edom, I believe, or Moab. But nonetheless, what's happening there is that Gilead is supposed to be a sanctuary for a refuge for those who um, were fleeing from whatever it was. And so it was the priests who were in charge. It was the priests who were to run the city, to run the laws, to uphold justice. And so Gilead is being a city of evil evildoers, tracked with blood. And so if, if Gilead is a city ran by the priests and it's considered uh, tracked with blood in this terrible place, how much worse are all the other um, cities if the leadership is corrupt here? And it's not to beat a dead horse, um, and what Alexander has preached on faithfully, but we talk about the, the importance of leadership and if corruption is within leadership, it trickles down one way or another. And so, but what is important to see here in verse 9, as robbers lie in wait for a man, so the priests band together. They murder on the way to Shechem. They commit villainy. And so in the same way today, you know, there's power in numbers, but also the role of, of priests, of pastors, of those who are in authority and leadership, and specifically within religion. Um, you know, today we have all these denominations being built where they, they break off from one denomination and form a whole new denomination. The idea is if you can find a couple priests, a couple pastors who agree with you, then you can just go and create your, a new denomination. So in the same way as, um, as priests then were banding together and creating these corrupt uh, ways of practices and, and it says committing villainy, and t- today, you know, false teachers are breaking away and finding, finding strength and unity and being grouped together and creating um, even more villainy. And then verses uh, 10 and 11, in the house of Israel, I've seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's whoredom is there, Israel is defiled. For you also, o, o Judah, a harvest is appointed. And this is just to go in to show the, the depth of Israel's depravity, that, it, that the Lord has seen it in all of Israel, um, that all of Israel is defiled. And even Judah um, is, a harvest is appointed, meaning that like, the Lord will deal with Judah one day soon. Because we know that Assyria conquered Israel in 722 AD, and then Babylonian would conquer Judah in 586. So that the day of, of wrath, the day of judgment for Judah is coming, 
their punishment is um, on its way. So, application. I have two, and they kind of go hand in hand. Um, we, as Courtney said, New Year's, New Year's resolution. It's rather a common thing um, to try to incorporate good habits or make good choices or um, do things that you, you deem will benefit yourself. And so my uh, thing to reflect on is what like your heart posture in pursuing the Lord, your heart posture in doing something. Because we see that the Israelites like, had a to-do list, and it was a checklist to get right with God. But the heart was wrong, and thus like the Lord rejected their sacrifices. He rejected their burnt offerings. And so what, not that you need New Year's resolutions, but going to next year, what can be like your, your, a better heart posture in pursuing the Lord and seeking after the Lord? And, and the other one that goes hand in hand with this is to seek the Lord, to know the Lord. Um, again, I, I just love that imagery of like it's it's this journey it's this adventure that the lord invites us on that we can continue to know more about him and he can, he invites us on it and he continues to reveal more of himself as we go day by day and it will continue into the next life for we have found eternal life now and the lord will continue to build upon that till the day that we are called home so was your heart posture and just seek to write and in light of that seek to rightly know the lord and pursue the Lord. So, if you pray with me. Almighty God, we thank you so much, Lord, um, for the season of life that we find ourselves in. Thank you for Christmas, Lord, and the opportunity to gather with family and celebrate um, for the joy and laughter and the memories that come with it, Lord. Um, King Jesus, I, I think about the people who aren't here today. Um, Lord, I just pray that you'd bless them with safe travels um, as they make their way back to Indy, Lord, and long to um, gather and unite with them and uh, praise your name with them, God, in, in the full body. Lord, we thank you so much that you reveal yourself, that you eager, you long to give more of yourself to your people, to your children, God. That, Lord, you don't forsake us, you don't turn your back on us, God, but rather you continue to invite us to go farther to go deeper in knowing and loving you god so lord let the cry of our hearts be to to know you god to desire you more than anything else to count all things rubbish um, for the sake of knowing the king of king and lord of lords god this is all for you um, it's all honor glory and power to your name your name alone in the name of jesus i ask and pray all these things amen